The, uh, the roots of this, of this miracle are found in chapter 8. Uh, you're probably much more familiar with chapter 8 than you are in chapter 9. It's the, it contains the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, I understand the textual problems that surround that particular story. Most, uh, most of our translations put a note in the side uh, column or in the, as a footnote that uh, this, uh, this particular story does not occur in the, in the oldest manuscripts. And, and there's been a great debate over that uh, particular story for 1,500 years. Uh, for myself, I'm convinced that this event actually happened. I'm convinced that it's placed in John in the proper place because it leads right into the argument of, of chapter 8 and Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. I came to expose uh, reality. I, I came to show things as they really are. Uh, the story fits in that uh, location. You know the story, this uh, dear woman was dragged out of bed and into the temple area and dumped unceremoniously at Jesus' feet. She, I'm sure, was terribly embarrassed and ashamed, rumpled, perhaps somewhat defiant. And uh, she was brought into this crowd and her sins exposed to the whole community. Uh, One wonders where the man was. Uh, He apparently was overlooked. It was the woman who, who endured the shame, as is often the case. And uh, you remember our Lord's words first in response to the, uh, the challenge uh, of the Pharisees. Uh, they said to him, Moses said that we should stone such a woman as this. There's real derision in their words. What do you say? And uh, you recall what Jesus did. Basically, he said nothing. He knelt and began to write in the soil and then he looked up at her accusers and he said, He who is without a sin, let him cast the first stone. He wasn't thinking specifically of the sin of adultery. There's simply no record in any Jewish writings of any rabbi having committed adultery, at least not the overt uh, act. But uh, they all knew their own hearts. They knew the sin that resided there. And uh, no one could throw a stone. You know, this is always our tendency to throw rocks at others be highly critical of their actions, and particularly those whose sin is exposed to all. But in this case, what our Lord did is expose the sins of everyone. And that's why he said, I'm the light of the world. He brought out into the open not only the sin of the woman, but uh, the sin of the Pharisees who would want to to stone this woman because of, of her sin. And that's why later in the chapter, Jesus said, I did not come to condemn. If I did condemn, my words would be true, but I did not come to condemn, I came to save. What our Lord does, both by his actions and by his words, is to expose the deep, dark sins of our hearts, the sins that no one else sees. He shines the light in the dark corners of our life, those areas that we reserve to ourselves, uh, and he exposes us for what we are. And uh, what John teaches us is that there really aren't two classes of people. There aren't good people and bad people. We're all basically bad people. That's not to say we can't do good things. That's not to say that we should be down on ourselves and hate ourselves because there is a way out of our badness. But uh, John 8 tells us very clearly the truth. 
And the truth is that we're all very, very bad. Perhaps we're not guilty of the sin of adultery, but uh, we're guilty of other sins, equally heinous, perhaps even more so. And uh, our Lord came to expose us as we are. And that leads us into the story of the man who was blind from birth. I've said before that not only are these miracles a manifestation of the character of God, but they also are, are, are somewhat like parables. Each miracle taken on its own is a symbol of some deeper reality which our Lord came to, uh, to reveal. Now let's begin reading uh, with verse 1 of chapter 9. And as he passed by, that is Jesus and his disciples, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as, long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As far as we know, our Lord was in Jerusalem. He had just come out of the temple area after uh, the conversation with the Pharisees regarding the woman and the more extended discourse that flowed out of that uh, event. He came out of the uh, temple, and as he was walking through the streets of Jerusalem, they came across this man, uh, this blind man, who's described as blind from birth. Now, we don't know how they knew that. Perhaps he was uh, very well known in the city of Jerusalem, notorious for his, uh, his blindness. And uh, the disciples began to, to theorize, to theologize. They raised the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be, uh, he should be born blind? Uh, that's our favorite uh, pastime. We love to theorize about the origin and distribution of other people's sins. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a favorite uh, indoor uh, game. We, we love to talk about why people have gotten themselves in such a terrible mess. What can we say about this uh, dreadful disease, AIDS? Is it the judgment of God upon homosexuals and that sort of thing? Uh, Jesus warns us about doing that kind of uh, theorizing. We simply cannot know what causes other people's uh, Distress. There's an interesting incident in the Gospels where the disciples of Jesus and some of the other uh, Jews came to him and asked him a question about certain Galileans whose sacrifices, as they put it, had been mingled with their blood by uh, Pilate. What happened is that uh, these Jews went to sacrifice and Pilate had them massacred and their blood mingle with the blood of their sacrifices. And, and the inference that they make is they must be great sinners to have this, uh, this terrible thing happen to them. And Jesus said, uh, do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than anyone else? Or what about those 18 Jews who were crushed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Some, uh, some current uh, event that we're unaware of, but apparently a tower fell and a number of people lost their lives. Jesus said, do you think these people were greater sinners than you are? No, he said, unless you repent, you will all suffer judgment. See, again, our Lord puts his finger right on the issue. Our tendency is to point our finger at others, point out their sin, and our Lord won't let us do that. He makes his deal uh, with, our, with our own. 
As a matter of fact, in this case, the Lord's answer is to say, neither this man nor his parents sin. There's a nobler explanation. You know what he says? It was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Which is an interesting way of looking at our handicaps, our afflictions. All of us, in some sense, are handicapped. Uh, No one comes into this world without some limitation. It may be physical, it may be psychological, it may be emotional. But all of us are handicapped and limited. And uh, sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, why am I as I am? What terrible thing have I done to deserve this? And our Lord gives us a nobler explanation for our handicap. He says, it is that the works of God might be displayed through us. Moses is a, a... Wonderful illustration of this principle. Moses stammered. Did you realize that? He stuttered. He had some kind of, uh, of uh, defect that made it very difficult for him to communicate. Yet Hebrews tells us he was an eloquent man. That's in reference to his words, not how he said what he said. And that was Moses' problem when he, when he had to appear before Pharaoh. How can I, he said, who am slow of tongue and slow of speech, address the the most powerful man in in, in the world at that time? And God's answer to him is not, I'm going to heal your speech defect, but rather, who made your tongue this way? Who made you blind or seeing or lame or deaf? You see, God accepts the responsibility for those limitations, and he works through us despite them. In this case, this man had endured this affliction for many, many years. We have no idea how old he was at the time this miracle was worked. But um, God permitted this uh, handicap, this limitation, so that this greater work would be displayed through him. God would manifest his power through his, uh, his limitations. I want you to notice also the pronoun that our Lord uses in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. He includes us. He included the disciples of his day and and all of us here in this room that that acknowledge Jesus Christ as as Lord. We're bound up with him in this, this work of redemption. Our business is not to point our finger in judgment at others, but rather to, uh, to redeem them. Uh, I, uh, I don't know how many of you saw the presentation on ABC this last week of the, the, the terrible story of Dan White. Uh, I was in San Francisco in, in that area at the time. Dan White was the man who killed Harvey Mellick, shot Harvey Mellick, and uh, Mayor Moscone of San Francisco, uh, ostensibly because he disliked homosexuals. That was uh, at least uh, the motive that, that was suggested, although he never admitted to that. Uh, Dan White uh, uh, spent eight years, actually he spent five years in prison. He was given eight years. He spent five. He lived a couple of years in Southern California, moved up to the San Francisco area against the counsel of of, uh, all the people that had been involved in this, in the the terrible tragedy in his beginning, and then shot himself here a few years back, killed himself. And we look at that terrible story, and it's very easy for us to sit in judgment on all that were involved in that, uh, in the events of, of those days. 
And yet what our Lord would want us to do is to see the hurt and the pain, the agony of people who went through those experiences, and rather than sit in judgment and condemn them, rather to act redemptively. I, you know, I just wonder if anyone during that time really loved Dan White and shared the gospel with him. That's our task. And Jesus said, as long as there are opportunities, as long as there is light, as long as it's the daytime, we must work the works of the one who's, who's redemptive, the one who came to save. It says something about the way we look at our neighbor, you know, the neighbor who throws the wild parties and throws the beer cans over in our backyard and, and who's uh, involved in all kinds of uh, immoral activities, and we tend to look down our nose at people like that. And yet our Lord wants us to understand that we're all in this together. We're all sinful people. As Solzhenitsyn pointed out in, in his Gulag Archipelago, the line of evil does not run between nations or ethnic groups. The line of evil runs through every heart. Well, maybe we don't throw wild parties, but uh, maybe we gossip, or maybe we, uh, we fantasize about immoral things, and we're all sinful. And we should not look across the fence at our neighbor and, and despise him or her. We should rather see them as someone that God loves and someone is reaching out to, and, and we should... We should work the works of him who sent us. We, we, he, uh, he includes us in. While I am in the world, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I've always been struck by Paul's, uh, Paul's statement, redeem the time because the days are evil. I've mentioned that statement before. It always comes home to me when I, when I think uh, of what, our, what Paul is actually saying. We read that statement as though he's saying, redeem the time because the days are short. We have to buy up the time. But that's not what he's saying. He tells us to redeem, buy up the time because the days are evil. Evil days are days of opportunity. The more evil people become, the more aware they become of their need of a Savior. And these are days of daylight. They're days of opportunity. You understand the analogy he's using, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of dark. Normally in those days, uh, men and women didn't work eight hours a day. They worked 12 or 14 as long as there was as daylight. They didn't have, uh, uh, didn't have uh, much light. To, you know, it was useful at night, so they went to bed when it got dark. And uh, Jesus' analogy is very clear. As long as there is an opportunity to work, work, redeem the time. Uh, like our Lord, we did not come to condemn, but to redeem. Now, uh, when he had said this, John tells us, and John was there on the scene, Jesus spat on the ground, verse 6, and made mud out of the spittle and applied the mud to his eyes. And we say, how, uh, how strange, what an odd miracle. He just spat on the ground and he made a little bit of mud and he daubed it in the man's, man's eyes. Why? Well, think for a moment uh, of what our Lord was symbolizing. Go back to Genesis 2. What's the stuff of which we're made? Mud. That's all. All we are is a little bit of dirt and a whole lot of water. And that makes mud. If I ever write another book for men, I'm going to entitle it Men Made Out of Mud. Because that's, that's what we are. If, if you were to take all of the uh, space from between the molecules in us and compress us down, what you'd be left with 
is a very heavy mass of mud about the size of a marble and not worth a whole lot more. None of us are anything very special or extraordinary. As G.K. Chesterton said, we're all very ordinary people, and the extraordinary people know it. And, you know, and, and we look at ourselves, and, and you just stop and think for a moment of the amount of money and time and effort that we sent, or that we spend, trying to make this piece of mud look more presentable. We're just very ordinary people. We're made out of out of clay, and and that's why our Lord did, did what He did. It was to bring to their mind the story of Genesis two and the fact that. God made a little man out of mud, breathed life into him, and our Lord made a little bit of mud, dabbed it in his eyes, and sent the man off to the pool of Siloam to wash. John makes the, uh, the uh, observation that the fact that he was sent to the pool of Siloam is significant. He said to him, Jesus said to the man, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. John saw something significant about the name of the place. He was sent. Jesus asked him to do the the one thing he could do. This man didn't know who Jesus was. uh, Had very little faith. In fact, it's interesting to see his faith grow from, from a very small quantity of faith to great faith as the story progresses. But he could go. He could feel his way down the, the streets that he knew, and he could make, make his way to the pool of, of Siloam, which was named Sent, because it was sent through an aqueduct from the spring, Gihon Spring on the uh, east side of the city, down under the city, and to the southern end of, of the city of Jerusalem, where it opened up into a pool. So the man went, and he did what Jesus told him to do. That's all faith is. You just have to begin where we are. Whatever Jesus is asking you to do it, do it. That's what, that's what faith means. I was talking to a man this past week who told me how he became a Christian. I asked him the story, and, and he volunteered this information. He, uh, he said he was faced with a moral dilemma. He had a choice of doing something that he knew Jesus said was wrong and doing what was something that was right, and he knew if he did what was right, that it would in, involve loss of popularity and he was, that he was depending upon. People wouldn't uh, support him in a particular endeavor. And nevertheless, he knew. He didn't know much more, but he knew what was right. He knew what he ought to do. And so he made that uh, very small choice, and he chose to do what was right. And when he did it, the Lord revealed more and more of himself to him until he was able to come to him as Savior and Lord. All this man could do was work his way down to the pool and bathe, but he did it. The Lord sent him. He acted upon that uh, bit of truth, and he came back seeing. As I've commented before, these, uh, the description of these miracles is so uh, brief and condensed that we sometimes miss the drama. Here's a man he'd never seen in his life. And he bathes, and he can now see, he can see colors, he can see the faces of people that he didn't know before. He could see his loved ones, perhaps his children. Uh, He could see the beauty of the mountains around Jerusalem. All the things that he had missed because he was blind. Suddenly, reality became very, very clear to him. 
Now, what follows in the story is a series of, of debates and discussions and uh, interviews and conversations about, about the miracle. And we don't have time to go into it in any detail, but uh, as I read it in the New International, I, I've been reading out of the New American Standard Bible, but as I read it in the New International Version, the uh, succinctness of this man's answers were, were very striking. If you have an NIV and read through it, you'll probably come to the same impression. Very laconic, uh, uh, short answers to these questions, and you begin to build a, an idea of the sort of personality that uh, this man was. Let's just read through the account. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, it's like him. He kept saying, I'm he, I'm the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, how then with your eyes opened? He answered, the man who's called Jesus. That's all he knew. Didn't know anything more about our Lord, except his name was, was Jesus. Made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. And they said, where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he didn't know much. He just knew he could see. I didn't know a lot of theology. He just knew that for the first time in his life, reality had broken upon him. He could see things as they, as they really are. So they brought the Pharisees. Uh, they brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now, it was Sabbath on the day when Jesus made mud. That was against the law, their law, not God's law. I mentioned last or two weeks ago the strict and uh, often absurd regulations with which they uh, bound men and women on, on the Sabbath. And the fact that Jesus spat on the ground and made mud was a violation of their law. They were more concerned about tradition and keeping their rules and uh, their conventions than they were about the state of, of this man. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. He said to them, he put, he put mud in my eyes and I, and I could see. Uh, I watched and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a, div a division among you. They said, therefore, uh, among them, they said, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Or here's an advance in this man's faith. He started out believing he was he was a man, Jesus. Now he says he's a prophet, one sent from God. See, that's the great debate. They're saying this man couldn't be from God. He must be a sinner because he violated the Sabbath. The man said, no, he must come from God. He's a prophet. Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the, of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son? Who you say was born blind, then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. They passed the buck on to their son. They knew full well what had happened to him. If he told his neighbors, he certainly told his parents that Jesus had put mud in his eye and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And he had come back seeing. They knew all of this. But uh, they were afraid. They were afraid they'd be excommunicated. 
So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. In other words, take an oath. We know this man is a sinner. Disavow him. He therefore answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Love this guy. And they reviled him and said, you, and his, uh, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. Actually, they were not. Because remember what Jesus said about Moses? Moses testified of me, he said. You will not come to me that you might have eternal life. They were still thinking in terms of human effort. If we keep the, the word of Moses, the law of Moses, then we'll be acceptable by God. That was neither Moses' teaching nor Jesus' teaching. The law always drove men and women to their knees. It drove them to the end of themselves so that they cried out in desperation for salvation. It was true in Moses' day. It's true, it's true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. So they weren't uh, Moses' disciples at all. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, now here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, in other words, those that are bent upon sin, those that will not deal with their sin. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born, born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. And they put him out. They excommunicated him. You see, again, they were, they were looking at his sin. You're the sinful one. And they excommunicated him. Jesus heard that they had put him out and, and he found him. You know, it, it occurred to me the other day that there's a hook in our Lord's statement, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Not only will he not forsake us, he will never leave us alone. You know, we say, why didn't he mind his own business and leave us alone? Well, he can't because we are his business. And therefore, he cannot leave us alone. He will hound us. He will hunt us down. He will badger us. He'll beleaguer us until he can embrace us. He will not give up on us. Now, here's a man whose faith was emerging, and, and you can see it in his reaction to the Pharisees. He's willing to take his side with Jesus. He's not even sure who he is at this point, but he's willing to align himself with the truth. And to pay the consequences, no matter what it would cost him, in this case, excommunication, which is a very serious thing in a Jewish community. It meant not only could you not go to the synagogue or the temple, but uh, you couldn't buy or sell or trade. Uh, you were ostracized. You were persona non grata. You were, people wouldn't even talk to you on the street. This was a very serious thing. But this man had made the decision to align himself with Jesus because he knew that our Lord could do something for him that no one else could do. You see his question, has anyone ever done this before in the history of the world? This man must be from God. 
So uh, Jesus uh, hunted him up, and he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a messianic title. That was the word that was used by the rabbis of that time to refer to uh, the one who was to come, the Messiah. It's a title that's taken from the book of, of Daniel. clearly refers to the Messiah. The man answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were, who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, the very fact that they could say we see indicted them because they were trying to cover up their sin. They saw all too clearly what they were. They saw the darkness in their own hearts, but they weren't willing to acknowledge it. They weren't willing to bring it out into the light where our Lord could do something about it. They didn't want to deal with their own sin. They wanted to deal with the sins of others and point their finger at, uh, at those uh, who violated uh, the law or violated their, their tradition. Now, what do we learn from this, uh, from this story? What application can we make of it? Well, it strikes me uh, as uh, I read through the passage that uh, there's an emphasis made on the fact that this man was blind from birth. His affliction was congenital. Uh, and so is ours. We too are blind from birth. We have a distorted sense of reality. We don't know what's, what's right and what's wrong. We don't know what's up and what's down. We, we have, we're not completely out of touch with reality, just as this man in his blindness had some sense of of what was real, but we, reality is distorted for us. We're like the, uh, the, the uh, three Indian men, three blind Indian men that were examining an elephant. I remember that reading that story to, to our children. One man stands at the front of the element, elephant and he feels his trunk, or, and he says, an elephant is like a hose. And another one feels his legs, and he says, no, an elephant is like a tree. And then the third feels his tail and says, no, an elephant is like a rope. See, they're all distortions of, of reality, and that's the way we are. We have some sense of what ought to be. There's some light in every heart. It's what Paul describes as the law written upon, upon our hearts. But, but then the light is distorted, and we don't know. That materialism is sin. We don't know that homosexuality is wrong. We don't know that adultery is something that destroys uh, human life. We don't know that gossip and, and pride are terribly destructive, perhaps far more destructive than, than any other sins. And then Jesus shines the light. He turns on the light and we begin to see what, what's true begin to see where reality lies. For example, we come to 
Jesus' words on the mountain, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who don't think too highly of themselves. That's just the reverse of everything the world tells us. You have to have a a good self-concept, and we should. And becoming real men and women in Jesus gives us a right concept, but because we don't understand the truth, we spend most of our of our early years trying to pump ourselves up and enthuse ourselves about our own goodness rather than admitting that we're dreadfully sinful. We're terribly distorted in our thinking. We have all sorts of sins in us that need to be dealt with. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to recognize our limitations. And Jesus said, happy are those who who are poor in spirit, who know how needy they are, how desperate they are. And that's certainly different than, than what we're told in our, in our blinded state. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That, that is, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, who take their sin very seriously. Uh, when we're children, we seem to have a built-in set of inhibitions, and as we grow up, we spend most of our time tearing down those inhibitions until... Finally, as adults, we sin with impunity and, and we don't recognize how sinful we really are. And, and we, we don't want to take a good hard look at our sin and grieve over it. Jesus says, no, no, no. Happy is the man or woman who, who grieves over his sin because there's a way out. Once you see what you're like, you can come to Jesus and you lift the burden of misery and, and guilt. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, the non-defensive. Say, oh no, I've got to protect myself. I have to defend myself against attacks. If I don't, who will? Jesus said, blessed are the, are the non-defensive, for they'll inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. You see, these are the, the, these are, this is the light. This is our Lord turning the light on our, on our hearts and, and showing us what's, uh, what's real. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, in one of his uh, Father Brown books, puts it this way, No man is really any good until he knows how bad he is, till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types and deficient skulls, till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees, till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. We just must look at ourselves realistically. We are a fallen people. We are sinful. We're sinful in ways that we're not even aware of. Paul, in describing his own life, uh, tells us how he thought he was doing extremely well until he came to the Tenth Commandment. And he said, when I read that commandment, thou shalt not covet, I died, he said. You know, he'd never murdered anyone. He'd never committed adultery. He'd, he didn't think he had borne false witness. He'd always been truthful and he'd hewed to the law and he had always uh, carried out the sacrifices that provided forgiveness for the law, and he thought he was doing extremely well. He was very proud of himself, very self-righteous. 
He was on top of everything. And then suddenly the Tenth Commandment came home to him and he realized how much he wanted someone else's property or someone else's wife or someone else's reputation. And it killed him. He died, he said. And that's what happens when the light shines into our hearts. Kills us. We try to fend it off. But it finally exposes us for what we really are. We're all desperately sinful people. We're all just a bunch of beggars standing at the foot of the cross asking for our Lord's salvation. And it's then that Jesus says to us, come to me. Come, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he kills, begins to kill that old man that isn't us at all. And we begin to have the new man. It begins to grow in us. And then our sense of confidence in what we are begins to grow because what we are is a man and a woman being conformed to the image of Christ. But you see, it all begins with seeing things as they really are. Now, that will lead us to God. It's that hurt that leads us to healing in Christ. But that also makes us more effective in our witness. The problem with most of us is that we look around us at our non-Christian friends and we say, well, I'm not like that. And we're really no better off than the man in the temple who pointed to the publican and said, thank God I'm not like that man. But you see, we are. Maybe we're not guilty of the same sins, but we're guilty of sin. And once we begin to see what we're really like, it makes us so much more tender and kindly and gracious to people who, who are on the outside. And we can truly be the friend of sinners. You see, that was, uh, that was the description given of our Lord. He's the friend of sinners. What did that mean? Well, there were sinners that were his friends. There were adulterers, there were fornicators, and there were liars, and there were cheats, and uh, all sorts of people that made up the crowd that were around him, and, and they felt uncomfortable about the truth, but they never felt uncomfortable about him because he did not come to condemn. There was never any, any sense of, they never picked up any condescension or or any judgment in his voice, his tone, his eyes. He was always loving and he was always kind. And he was always offering salvation. Because as he put it, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. You say, well, what about the Pharisees? He was awfully hard on the Pharisees. Yes, he was. He, he was hard on, hip, on hypocrisy. And he still is today. But I'm convinced that the reason he was so harsh with the Pharisees is because in reaction they would explode. And they would show themselves what they were really like. See, they thought they were doing very well. And then our Lord came and he called them a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers and they would blow up and the evil would come out and they'd begin to see themselves for what they really are. And some of them, like Nicodemus, would then come to Jesus at night and say, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And they would come to him for cleansing and for a new life. And so... Understanding this miracle helps us to understand ourselves and it helps us to understand the people around us and make us much more effective in the way we love and befriend the lost. Well, let's, let's pray, shall we? Let's stand together and ask that God would shine his light into our hearts and as we 
as we read his word, we would permit God to expose all the dark corners of our life that we're that we reserve to ourselves so we can bring that sin out into the open so it can be dealt with. Lord Jesus, we confess that we're like this man. We are born blind. We came into the world distorted in our, our view of reality, bent and twisted and sinful in our thinking. This is an idea that... that rings true, and yet it it offends us, it shocks us, it shakes us to realize that we're not what we thought we were. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves as you see us, as desperately needy people. Grant to us that poverty of heart that comes from realizing that we have nothing to bring to you that would render you favorable toward us. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We thank you that in your coming you have made us alive. You've given us a new life. You've given us a new way of looking at at ourselves. We can see ourselves now not in our sin, but, but men and women being conformed to the image of Christ, those who bear your righteousness, those who have the potential for perfect righteousness when we we step into your into your presence and you conform us to your image. And Lord, in our relationships with the people around us, our neighbors, our associates at work, our, the friends that we work and play with, Lord, help us never to, to judge or condemn those on the outside. Help us to realize the one message we have to give them is the message of the good news, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help us to do that faithfully. Help us to love the lost. Help us to be a the friend of sinners, as you were. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.